The following program discusses medical information that is general in nature and not intended to serve as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be experiencing. Welcome to another episode of Nice Living with Dr. Cameron, a podcast dedicated to shedding light on health and wellness topics, starring someone who's dedicated his entire life to helping others as a general surgeon and vascular surgeon, the very brilliant and very kind Dr. Cameron Gadarzi. Hi, Dr. Cameron. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? I don't think I deserve all those compliments, but thank you. Well, it's great to be here with you for another episode of Nice Living. Now, our first few episodes have been focused on vein disease, and we've been leveraging your insight uh, as a vascular surgeon. Of course, we know you've helped thousands of patients around the Wilmington area uh, with your clinic, Scarless Vein Care. And in our last episode, we started to switch things up a little bit. We featured a very special guest to talk about the connection between vein disease and dermatology, different forms of skin cancer, and really the importance of getting those skin cancer screenings as well. Very good friend of yours, board-certified dermatologist, Dr. Jonathan Crane. And of course, he has his practice in Wilmington, North Carolina called Atlantic Dermatology as well. But we are honored to have him back on the program once again as well. So welcome also, Dr. Crane. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, Dr. Cameron, you and I have spoken extensively about the evolution of vein disease treatments and how these complicated procedures over the years have shifted from that hospital setting to now simple in-office procedures. And today, I know you wanted to talk about how there's been a similar evolution when it comes to treatment of skin cancers as well. So I think this will be a really interesting conversation for all of our listeners to experience having two doctors talking about these evolutions and treatment modalities. So I'm going to turn things over to you because I know you've got quite a few questions for Dr. Crane today. Thank you very much, Amy. There is not many nice things about getting old, but there is one good thing about getting old is that you've been there, you've done that, and uh, you kind of see what is coming up. So when I tried to talk about venous disease, I was trying to go back and literally remember how we used to be very barbaric, the way we removed veins, and then where we are now, and of course, what technology is coming you know, forward. I'm so honored to have Jonathan Crane with me today because he uh, is not as old as I am, but he uh, has also been through this transition of the old technology, current technology, and what technology is available going forward. And uh, Amy, as you and I talked before, one of our whole intention of having nice living with Dr. Cameron was to bring out common conditions that are present in our world, medical conditions, and we wanted to basically ask questions from the experts about questions that patients might have. They want to know, okay, how do you treat something very common like a skin cancer? What is a skin cancer? And as you know, our goal was just to be an advocate for our patients and for the public to understand when they have a discussion with their, with their doctor, what kind of questions to ask and what modalities are available. And having said that, during our first episode, we did talk about the three common skin cancers, basal cell and squamous cell and, of course, melanomas. What I'd love to hear from Dr. Crane today is, okay, how do we treat these? Uh, so Dr. Crane would be kind enough to tell us what are the different treatment modalities which are currently available to treat um, these skin cancers. 
Well, thanks for having me here once again. And there are three main types of skin cancers, like we said, that we're going to be discussing. Basal cell skin cancer, squamous cells, and melanomas. Basal cells are the most common, and melanomas tend to be the most aggressive out of the group. So basal cells, uh, different types of basal cells. Mm -hmm. There are superficial basal cells, which are just on the outermost layer of skin, not really very aggressive. And there are deeper more invasive, more aggressive types of basal cells, like a micronodular basal cell. So you could have quite a bit of variation even within the basal cell family. So if you have a simple superficial basal cell, so many different treatments we could do for it. We could numb it up with a little bit of lidocaine and literally burn it off with a little electric cautery and scrape it and burn it and scrape it a little bit and it'll go away having well over an 80% cure rate with that. With a superficial basal cell, there are creams that could be used, something called a miquimod. And you basically put this cream on twice a day for about six weeks. It's a really neat medicine. It pulls your immune system to the area and your own body's immune system attacks the basal cell and gets rid of it for you. It stimulates alpha interferon. It stimulates all sorts of immune cells to basically get rid of the basal cell very natural way. There's phenol, which is an acid. You could literally burn it off with an acid. There are lasers like CO2 lasers where you could go over the surface with a laser and vaporize the basal cell. We could use radiation. So let's say it's a large area that you'd want to be less aggressive with as far as the treatment. Let's say you have a 90-year-old person, big basal cell on the tip of their nose, and you don't want to go ahead and cut off the tip of their nose. It's putting them through a lot, so you could radiate it. And radiation actually works extremely well in basal cells, probably over 95% cure rate most of the time. And there's even a medicine called Aravig, which it's a pill that you take by mouth and gets rid of basal cells. Aravig is a real neat medication. It's been out a couple of years. One of the side effects, it could knock out your taste buds for a while. Aravid doesn't have 100% cure rate, but we could shrink it way down to almost nothing so that it doesn't bother the person anymore. But that, that's fascinating. So what are other treatments are available for basal cell cancer? Sure. We, we could freeze them with liquid nitrogen, and that's not a common treatment, but it, it actually works extremely well. So you basically take liquid nitrogen and you freeze the area for about a minute or so, and then it thaws out over the course of about five, 10 minutes or so. And then mm -hmm. you usually do a second round on it. And that actually has an outstanding cure rate, but it, it's a tough thing to go through. So some of the treatments early on could be really rough to go through, but the result in the end could be terrific. So freezing really gives a good result with liquid nitrogen, but we don't do that as frequently. The numbing and burning sometimes leaves a round circular scar. That's tough also. So we weigh out the individual patient and kick around the different options. So that's where the, as they say, the art of medicine uh, comes in, right? So you've really that's got to look at the patient's age, their life expectancy, their how much they can tolerate. Right. So when you make a decision about what treatment you use, you're looking at the size of the tumor, how deep it goes. And what are the risks, right? Because the, exactly. because the basal cell cancer does never metastasize, which right. uh, doesn't go anywhere in the body. So as long as you locally can keep it under control, then I think that is wonderful. And uh, Amy, I, I remember in medical school, there was a picture of this uh, lady who refused medical treatment and she had a basal cell on her face. And they took serial pictures towards the end, you could even see a jaw basically chewed up through her muscle and tissue. So if you don't, you know, you have to have what we call local control. 
So, uh, so it seems to be the size, the depth, and the treatment itself, uh, how much patients are able, if some people just don't like any kind of surgery, and if it's the tip of your nose, you can't obviously cut it and form to cause deformity. Right. And actually, you, you mentioned that most mm-hmm. common treatment is surgery, cutting it out. Right. And that's probably the easiest in the vast majority of cases, because I'd say probably 90%, we actually do end up numbing up and cutting out and suturing if it's on the face, hands, groin area, somewhere you, where you want to be tissue sparing and take out the minimal amount possible, then there's something called Mohs surgery. And Mohs surgery, you cut out the skin cancer sticking real close to the border, and the dermatologist acts as a pathologist in that case. And literally, there's a lab right there in the office that processes the specimen. And dermatologist then goes, looks at the specimen and sees where there's a little bit left. So let's mm-hmm. say if you think of it as a pizza pie that they cut out, well, maybe a, one of the slices has a little bit of cancer in it, but all the other slices are clear. So then they'll go back just to that one spot and then they cut out a little bit more and then they look at it. So most surgery is tissue sparing. It's taking small pieces, small bites, basically looking at it, seeing what's left and then going from there. If it's an area like a back, or chest or a forearm, you tend to just look at the skin cancer. You go a few millimeters around it, anywhere from three to five millimeters around it, depending upon how aggressive the basal cell is. And you literally cut it out and you stitch it together. It might be a simple ellipse. It might be a flap. If it's a really large one, you might even take a graft from somewhere. You might take a graft from the clavicle or graft from the abdomen, but you could always take skin grafts. And we do 99.9% of the surgeries in the office. That's fantastic. Yeah, so it really works out great. It's local anesthetic, nothing general. And save a lot of lives. Well, that, that is absolutely fascinating. In fact, I was about to ask you about Mohs surgery. I remember Mohs came out was about 20 years ago or maybe a little longer when, you know, it was the way to do it. And Amy, you know, for the sake of public and, of course, uh, if you're not familiar with this, everybody's pretty much heard of Mohs surgery. You really need to have a specialized surgeons. You need to have people who are very well trained in it. And the surgeon also behaves like a pathologist. So uh, Dr. Crane is uh, being very modest, but, you know, they have to have a special training to be able to continuously take the specimen, look at the microscope, make sure they got the edge before you go and do some more. But I'm going to ask you some basic questions which I've always wanted to know. What sure. is... is was Mohs surgery named after a doctor, or does it stand for something? Frederick Mohs. Frederick Mohs. And where was he from? Not sure. I'd, I'd have to <laughs> okay. look that up. <laughs> so, uh, well, obviously, he made a major, major breakthrough. He was from his mama. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now, uh, well, that, that, that is fascinating. So when uh, I'm going to have Mohs surgery, you don't do Mohs surgery on everything, right? So if a basal cell or, or a tumor or a squamous cell is, is somewhere, where there is plenty of tissue available, you just cut that out. Right. Whereas if some areas you really can't leave a defect, then you would do most procedure. <laughs> That's it, exactly. For example, the face, the ears, and that kind of thing. That's it, or, so, or somewhere right around the eyes, the eyelids. Now, yeah. personally, I don't do most surgery. Okay. There are several other physicians in my office who do most surgery, mm-hmm. and one of them spent a lot of time in the operating room at a major mm-hmm. cancer center wow. where they'd be working in conjunctions with ear, nose, and throat surgeons, neurosurgeons, mm-hmm. just going deeper and deeper uh, for all sorts of types of skin cancers. So some that are extremely aggressive, getting around the eye, for example, you may it might be a combined surgery, but the vast majority of Mohs, 99%, are done in the office. 
and it's only at certain cancer institutes where they'll do MOs in an operating room. So at what stage do you think one needs a plastic surgeon to come in? And I guess when they did the extreme flaps, right? Because you do your own flaps, a lot of them. Right. I'd say it's pretty rare that we need a plastic surgeon. So that's probably about 1% of the time. So as dermatologists, we're really trained in flaps, grafts, simple closures. Mm -hmm. We do a tremendous amount of that. Most surgeons, they've done a tremendous amount during their training. So we're all really very familiar with it. And sometimes the amount of skin cancers that that will treat a dermatologist or a Mohs surgeon could easily do 10 to 15 cancers in a day, which is really a tremendous amount. Plastic surgeons in general, they just don't do as much skin cancer, but they are an outstanding option at times also, uh, especially if there's a big defect. So basal cell, we, we talked about, there's no chance of metastasis, so local control, right? Uh, local local control, control, Amy, by the way, means that just make sure the, the tumor doesn't pass around its borders, it stays there. Now, the other two, a squamous cell, I believe, is the, is the other common one. Now, a squamous cell can metastasize, although rare. Am I, am I, am I correct? So if you could kind of tell us about that and the treatment of uh, a squamous cell, meaning what other modality would, would you utilize apart from the ones you mentioned? Sure. If you were going to do a squamous cell. Yes, yeah, so squamous cells are a little bit more aggressive than basal cells, mm-hmm. not terribly aggressive, with the exception on the lip or mm-hmm. mucosal surfaces, a vaginal area, mm-hmm. um, a urethral area on a male. So if, if it's a mucosal surface, then it could be a lot more aggressive. And then there's sometimes even a 10% chance of metastasizing or especially if it's a large squamous cell on the lip, it could get pretty rough. So squamous cells, most of the time we excise them, and Mohs surgery Mm -hmm. is used for squamous cells on a regular basis, especially if it's on the face, hands, feet. If it's not an aggressive one, you could dumb it up and burn it off. There's a medicine called 5-fluorouracil or Effudex cream, Mm -hmm. and you can actually use that on the squamous cells, especially if it's a superficial type, not always 100% as far as getting rid of it, but sometimes it works. And especially if if you have someone, a lady in her 90s that comes in and tough time walking, tough time getting around, maybe she doesn't have the best circulation in her legs, the cream is an option. It's a very good option rather than cut a big area out of her leg and then have an area that just doesn't want to heal. Phenol could work, lasers could work, radiation could work. So again, lots of different options for squamous cells as well. But 5-FU is interesting because I remember it came out as a treatment for cancer of the colon. Right. And then uh, you would have it form of injection, and then they came up with a cream, and then, of course, works so well with the superficial skin cancers, like you mentioned. Um, but that's that's fascinating how one drug comes out in one area, and then you manage to find a use for it somewhere else. Now, uh, do you have to worry about lymph nodes or things like that with the squamous cell? Or, uh... Because they are more aggressive, you definitely do have to worry about lymph nodes. Mm-hmm. If it's a superficial squamous cell on the top of a hand and it's pretty mm-hmm. small, probably not a big deal. If it's a larger squamous cell and it's on a lip, definitely a, a big deal. Or if it's mm-hmm. a, an anal area, could be a lot bigger deal. So basically size and location. But if, if it's a large one on a lip, for example, then sometimes that could spread to lymph nodes in the neck and then spread throughout your system. So it, it is something to be concerned with. And of course, you really don't know which one is what. I mean, you can guess, right? But you don't know what what is what until right. you take it out. So I often see patients, you know, we do a lot of vein procedures, as you know, and other procedures, but people come in and they've got these nodular lesions, which looks like a basal cell or even a squamous cell, and they kind of just ignore it and they don't want to have it looked at. And 
I'm always surprised that, you know, why would you sit on something like that, which could potentially, uh, which is absolutely curable, right? Right. Whereas if you delay it, especially with a squamous cell or maybe melanoma, then you're just prolonging life as best as you can. You're not curing anything. So that that is absolutely fascinating. I was going to take you next to the more worrisome tumor, which is melanoma. Right. right. So if you could kindly tell us about melanoma. Now, melanoma is, again, a, a, a usually more or a pigmented lesion, which we That's talked correct. about last last time. Mm-hmm. So h- how would you handle your melanomas? Melanoma, type of skin cancer, and these are the ones, like you said, they look mm-hmm. like funny moles. Maybe it's an asymmetrical mole, jagged border, several mm-hmm. colors, larger than a pencil eraser, or changing. So any moles that are changing, see your dermatologist. And the melanomas, they are more aggressive than basal cells or squamous cells. So because of that, they're almost always cut out. It's very, very rare that you'd want to use a cream or anything like that. And I I could say that I virtually never use creams for them. There are some dermatologists that will use creams occasionally, but in in general, it's it's something that we always think of excision. The good news about melanoma is you catch it early, it's no big deal. You catch it late, it's deadly. So we catch them early, and the vast majority of patients, we catch them well in time. There's something called melanoma in situ, where it's just in the outermost layer of skin. And when it's sitting there in situ, you just cut around it, take it out, stitch it up. That's the end of the story. There's no chemotherapy. There's no treatments otherwise. And if it gets a little bit deeper, but it's still under a millimeter in depth, again, it's just cutting it out, and often that's that's the extent of it. If it goes deeper than a millimeter, and a millimeter isn't very deep, but it sometimes takes us a little while to get there, but over a millimeter, then we typically send it to a surgeon who does sentinel lymph node biopsy because you know that there's more of a chance of that melanoma going to a lymph node. So what would happen is the surgeon will go ahead, cut out the melanoma, and then inject it dye or dyes, like a radioactive dye or a blue-colored dye. And that's something that I know that you do yourself. And then basically trace that dye to the first lymph node it hits, which is called the sentinel node, And then the surgeon will excise that. And from knowing if there's a node involved or no node involved, it helps with the prognosis. Yeah, the uh, I remember again the sentinel note came out. It started with I believe it was actually breast cancer. So the whole uh, idea was that the tumors, uh, when they metastasize, they always go to one lymph node first, and hence the sentinel node. And before they go to the other lymph node. So, um, Amy, for example, if you had breast cancer, we would go into the axilla, into the armpit, and take all the lymph nodes out. And that left swelling in the arm, created all kinds of issues. So, uh, I believe it was at John Wayne Hospital in uh, California, where they came up with the whole concept of sentinel node. Because they found out if you did the same thing that the tumor would do, uh, inject a little bit of radioactive dye into where the, let's say, breast cancer is, breast lump is, and then you trace it, see where that radiation went to, and you can get... It's following the breadcrumbs. Right. And and then you went in and took that lymph node out. And uh, when you take it out, you can literally look at the rhythm of radioactivity, and you find that it's all in that lymph node. Then you go back into the armpit and check it. There's no radioactivity there. So you know you got it. And uh, so then you knew that uh, you didn't have to take all the lymph nodes out. And then that got expanded into uh, melanomas and, and other things. So right. uh, so it's really, first of all, it's, it's not devastating. You don't have to take a lot, you know, do a lot of major surgery to take it out. Just, you know, take the sentinel node. And uh, in, uh, essentially, a lot of people even believe that taking the lymph node is more a 
what we call a prognostic factor. It tells you the degree of the disease as opposed to, you know, curing the disease. But um, I didn't mean to get sidetracked, but that sentinel note, uh, you know, that Dr. Kang, you're absolutely right. It's been a really major breakthrough. And that's something that you like to do in ambulatory surgery unit, and that's why you don't do it in your office. You can probably Correct. do that as well. We pass that on to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... How do you see the future? Where do you think? Because again, as I mentioned earlier, we've, we've had the time we were spending medicine and we know where it is going. Right. And uh, and of course, you know, we see the other things which are out there, not quite, you know, available, but they're out there. Where do you think, in your opinion, is going to happen 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now? Sure. Well, with, with basal cell, the Aravage, really neat pill by mouth and it's getting rid of a skin okay. cancer. Mm-hmm. There are other similar medications that are coming out for basal cell. Another one was approved recently. So I think as as we look down the path into the future, there are going to be more and more oral medicines to treat basal cells. Probably eventually same thing is going to start happening with squamous cells. With melanomas, the standard I think is going to be excision or excision with sentinel node for a while. But I wouldn't be surprised if at some point they start coming up with more internal medications for melanoma. Now, with that said, they have come out with medications for people that have metastatic melanoma that spread all over the body, and it's actually stopping it in many patients, and some mm-hmm. patients it's actually curing. So we've seen that, and I've been amazed at times. I had one patient that I had known for years, and he uh, had a melanoma before he first met me, and he had been doing well with it for quite a few years. And then all of a sudden, he was having a little bit of stomach pain. He had an upper endoscopy. They took a biopsy, and it was melanoma in his uh, intestine. So he came in, and he had been losing weight, and he'd been looking worse. And next thing you know, it was spreading all over his body. Went, had different type of chemotherapy treatment up at Chapel Hill, and came back. And he was looking great three months later. And I was like, wow, what happened here? And you're seeing this more and more with melanoma, where Mm -hmm. someone could have advanced metastatic melanoma, and some of these newer medicines are literally stopping it in its tracks. And now we look back, and that was probably about four years ago, and I still see him every three months who are searching for melanomas, and he's he's doing great. Uh, So it's miracles, where in the past it was almost certain death, and now it's really miracles that are happening on a regular basis. So I guess if enough miracles start happening on a regular basis, you look at it like we we found something that really does work. It's a miracle that, that they're coming up with these medications, but after a while you start to take them for granted. And you know, I know how medication is so expensive, especially in the United States. But I think one part, in all fairness to the pharmaceutical companies, is they need all this money to come up with newer drugs and newer treatments. And, you know, I was trained in England, came to the United States. The United States is the cutting edge of technology, and they have the, the availability of being able to come up with new, newer treatments. I mean, to think, I would have never thought you could take a pill and then it would cure your skin cancer. I mean, right. Isn't that ultimately what one would wish? Now, maybe one day they come up with a with a pill which would get rid of your varicose veins and they'll be out of business. But uh, <laughs> hopefully, you'll be retired by then. <laughs> but it, it is amazing, and and COVID, which is scary for many people, and there's a lot of negatives with COVID, but there are huge positives with COVID. And the number one positive is they're learning how to really fast track medications. I mean, if you look. Back at HIV, it took four years for a test to come out, five years for them to implement the test. And now with COVID, it's literally within months that they had a test for it and they've developed a vaccine within a year. That's truly amazing that they could develop a vaccine within a year. 
starting from scratch. And if you look back in history, typically get something approved, it would be about 15 years. So someone would come up with the greatest idea in the world, the greatest medicine, and 15 years it would take. And it was only one out of 1,500 that would actually end up approved. And it would cost over $500 million. So with COVID, the FDA has almost been like reprogrammed. Like we have to be able to get things out faster. So all of a sudden, this COVID treatment, the COVID testing, speed, speed, speed. And they've done very well as far as getting things out fast. So now they start looking and saying, what other things could we get out fast? Do we really have to wait the 15 years? Maybe not. Maybe too many people are dying that could be treated and, and cured just because we're waiting and we're looking to look at every single angle possible on something when maybe we don't have to hit it with that much bureaucracy. So I think COVID has really taught the world and everyone in the United States that you really are able to come up with things fast. And if you get bureaucracy pushed to the side to a certain extent, then miracles could happen. So my prediction is that COVID, it's horrible, all the deaths we've had, it's horrible, the people that have lost family members. But the silver lining is, I think it's going to probably save more people in the long haul because it would have taught the bureaucracy at the FDA how to get things uh, approved quicker. I really remember about 1980 when I came to the United States and we were using this uh, medication called Flagyl. You know, we were using it for years in, in England. Right. And uh, I was here in the emergency room, a patient came with, uh, with an abscess and we were not allowed to use it, which is the commonest bacteria causing it. It's called bacteroides, which is a response to flagellant, not to the other. So I was shocked that we couldn't use it here. But I think it's fair enough to continue to say it has to be safe, safe, safe. But while you're waiting for safety, you know, uh, you're also losing a lot of patients. And God knows how many people died because that wasn't available. Right. And uh, I hate to make this into a, other issues and uh, in, a, in a way uh, upset anybody. But, you know, I think the lawyers and everything else, I think, have scared us to the point that uh, the, the lawsuits, etc., that people now, in order to, to make something approved in the United States, they really have to, sometimes it's five years or 10 years later before it gets to the, to the people. In the meantime, a lot of people can die in the process. But that was a very good point you're, uh, you're bringing up. But uh, the, the great news is it looks as though the, the horizon is, uh, is already is, but it could be very bright uh, for treatment of um, skin cancers and perhaps, you know, other, other, other cancers. I, I think cancer in general, it's almost like the industrial revolution going on mm -hmm. in oncology where things are coming out faster and faster and they're getting approved faster and faster and the FDA, I have to compliment them because they're changing and they're growing and they're saying, you know, we have to get these things out. We have to get them out. And, and the bottom line is if someone doesn't have much to go or has no chance, might as well try something that's, quote, experimental. Yeah, sure. And then a lot of these experimental ones have a lot of information to it because it goes through different phases, phase one, phase two, phase three. It's approved, and then they do phase four studies after it's approved. So there's a process. So it's reasonable for someone to say, hey, we're in phase three. I want to get it. So the FDA has really been doing a great job, especially in the past couple of years. They're approving things faster and faster. And that's why we're seeing just miracles occurring left and right. So the point you're making, actually, again, very interesting. It's not what technology is coming out. It's also the technology which is out is going to be available without the bureaucracy. That's it. So it's not just a matter of creating it. It's also being able to get it to the public and then cut through the bureaucracy. And I'm sure some bureaucracy is important, but to what point, you know? So anyway, that's fascinating. Again, thank you so much for, for joining us. 
I've done all the talking today. I was just so fascinated, excited to have you here. So I couldn't stop talking uh, to get uh, all this information out of you for my own education and, of course, for for our listeners. But, um, Amy, I apologize. I didn't give you a chance to ask many questions yourself. So I'm going to ask you to see what, what thoughts, what questions you have for Dr. Crane. Oh, that's quite all right. This has been a fascinating discussion to hear, especially as you all are getting into what's on the horizon and advancements in treatments and seeing the rapid rate of innovation taking place across the nation and across the world. But jumping back a little further into the conversation, two questions came to mind for me. First on the cosmetic end, you know, looking to mitigate scarring due to necessary surgeries. What are some of the modalities to help in that regard? And then also, I'm curious about PRP or, you know, platelet-rich plasma, which is continuing to gain attention as a treatment modality for joints, even facials. I'm curious if that's being utilized uh, in the wound healing process, scar reduction, uh, or in other parts of the dermatological world as well. Topical silicon really can help quite a bit. I mean, it's amazing how well it could help a scar heal. So that that's something that we recommend on a regular basis. And years ago, I used to recommend silicon sheets. So it's really not as new as uh, people think. It's been around. It really, really could make a major difference in it. And where in the past, we used to have people apply silicon sheets over an area and keep it on literally 24-7 for weeks on end. And it would sometimes do amazing results with the scars. And no one knows exactly how or why it works. There's theories that it keeps epidermal growth factor in contact with the skin, all different theories. But anytime there's more than five theories, no one really knows what the heck's going on. <laughs> but um, nowadays we're, we're using more silicon gels where someone could put a gel on over their skin two to four times a day. And it, it's definitely very helpful. So basically the thought whenever you're dealing with a skin cancer, if you cut out a skin cancer, let's say, first thought is just let me get rid of the skin cancer. And you cut it out and then you say, okay, what could I do with this defect? You could do nothing and let it close in by itself and heal, which we call secondary intention. And sometimes just letting it heal by itself gives a very, very good result. It, it could really surprise us at times. We could take skin from an adjacent area and slide it over, which we call a flap, or we could take skin from another area, put it on it, which we call a graft. So basically after you have your defect, you think of, okay, what's the best cosmetically appealing way to close this lesion? And then once you close it that way, then you could go ahead and start using the silicon on top of it. You let it heal. The silicon does its thing. You look at it even three months later or six months later, if you're not 100% happy, if there are blood vessels in it, you could trace out the blood vessels with a laser and get rid of them. If you have an area where it's not blending as well. Sometimes we take a CO2 laser and we punch lots of little holes in the scar and then these holes sort of close up and tighten and makes the scar less noticeable. So definitely lots of tricks that could be used in the future. But the initial thought, one, get rid of the skin cancer, two, put, close the defect the best way we can to give the most cosmetically appealing result. And then three, later on down the road, we do the topical silicon plus whatever treatments that we need. PRP's been written up for hundreds of different types of treatments and some things it works well for and other things it's sort of questionable. So it's not a total miracle for everything. For hair growth, I think PRP could be extremely helpful and there's lots of studies showing that. And that's platelet-rich plasma, um, which basically means we draw blood from someone's arm, 
we put in a centrifuge, we spin it down. At the top area, there's a clear fluid, and then that's the plasma. And down near the base of that plasma is the platelet-rich plasma. And this platelet-rich plasma could help with healing, could help with hair growth, could help with a lot of different things. But hair growth is what I find that works best with. As far as scars, maybe helps a little bit. As far as uh, the facials or vampire facelift, uh, I've, I've been a little unimpressed with it. I know a lot of people are doing it. Typically, when you go to a plastic surgeon or a dermatologist and they do the PRP and inject it throughout your skin for wrinkles, maybe it helps a little bit. Often, they'll combine it with some sort of filler so you see an immediate result and, and you see something, but then it's probably more the filler that's doing the result than uh, the platelet-rich plasma. These are nice questions, actually. Well, uh, Dr. Crane, I'm so thankful to you for taking the time. I know for a fact how busy you are, uh, how hard you work, and you get very little sleep because you're working all the time. And I'm, I'm so thankful for you to take the time off and come and uh, join us today because this is really for public consumption. I call it giving back to the community, uh, your your knowledge, and questions that I'm sure everybody's had and either you don't get an opportunity to ask uh, in the doctor's office or uh, et cetera. So it's, it's wonderful you being here. And again, I really appreciate you give, giving your time. Thank you for having me here. I, I love it. I think it's great. Thank you so much again for taking the time to join us. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you on all these dermatological topics and hope you'll join us again. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This is the Nice Living with Dr. Cameron podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and think others could benefit from listening, please share it. We invite you to visit scarlessveincare.com forward slash podcast to view show notes, learn more about our guest, and listen to previous episodes. You can also find links to easily subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and now Amazon Audible. When it comes to the world of medicine, health, and wellness, there's always so much more to talk about. So if you have questions about this episode or want to recommend a topic for Dr. Cameron, send an email to nicelivingpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Amy Bowen. I'm Dr. Cameron. And we wish you good health, happiness, and nice living in the meantime.